So as, we, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we find ourselves in a new series, The Return, focusing on stories from the Old Testament when God's people have returned, whether that's physically or whether that's spiritually, because the same Hebrew word shuv means both to return to a place but also return to God. It's the same word that's often translated later as repentance, to turn around and to go towards God. And last week we talked about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming in us. And the reason that we are talking about returning during this season in our life as the church is because Well, one, we're returning to life as normal in a lot of cases. We have more travel this week than we have had since the beginning of the pandemic, both here on island and all throughout the nation. People are able to have different levels of comfort, more and more vaccines, and we're anticipating some release of some restrictions, even on Tuesday with the mayor of Honolulu. And so as we return, though, I think it's important for us to look back at some of the stories of the Old Testament to help us not just return to life, but to return in the wholeness of life. And today we have the story of the return from the Babylonian exile. But before I get to that, I'm going to tell you my the story of return. I, many of you know I grew up in Minnesota in a small town there. I went to Southern California. Um, that's where I met my wife, Ashley, although we were dating by the time I was at the end of college. And then I ran off to go teach English in Japan. And it was a very formative time for me, as is many uh, the year after college for those who graduate and go on that first year of establishing yourself in your new job or your new career, whatever it is, is, is a formative time. And so Japan has a near and dear place in my heart, and it was really formative for me. And one of the things I picked up while I was there was some fashion from them. And if you know anything about living in Japan, I mean, now it's a little bit more common to see uh, some of our young youth with some uh, fancy colored shoes and different colored socks and, you know, all this stuff. But at the time, back in, you know, the the late 20, like, uh, like about 2008 time, right, it wasn't as popular here. And so I had, was wearing these brand new, like neon type Uh, Nike shoes, and I had this V-neck jacket and a scarf, and I picked up all these like outfit, right, when I was there. And I went back to the return to my hometown in Minnesota of about 30,000 people. And I was going not just to the hometown of Minnesota, but I was going to meet my hockey buddies at a sports bar. And so there we were, I like walked in, and and it was just this experience, right? And some of you know, because I know many of us are not in the place that we grew up, that feeling of going back to hometown after um, whether it's been two to five to 10 years, right? You drive into town, and for me, it's a small town, so off that same exit on the interstate, and things get more and more surreal and familiar, right? And then some things you're like, oh, they put in a a Target in this town, or oh, there's a, a new stoplight on this corner. Oh, there's these changes that get the impression in your mind that things have changed. 
But it's not until you have this return experience that I'm telling you about, this idea that I came in and meet my friends at this sport bar, and there I was. I had this little, like, uh, kind of like a train hat, this like short hat, and I had that scarf, and I was just, looked like I'd come from another country, uh, probably, which I had, I'd just come from Japan, and there it was a sea of Carhartt jackets and sports regalia, and if you find, if you're from the Midwest, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and it was instant that I realized it wasn't the place that had changed so much, but I had changed, Right? Fast forward another five years, and life with my wife Ashley had sunk in, and if you uh, know my wife Ashley at all, she grew up in a household that didn't do things like eat Doritos and drink soda pop every day, which I had grown up doing, and so my habits of healthy eating had changed, and I remember she told my family one time, or my parents, not not the extended family, what do you want for dinner? And she was like, I want meat without nitrates, and they looked at her like, what are nitrates, right? And if you don't know what they are, you don't know what they are, but if you do know what they are, you avoid them because you don't want to eat that. You eat organic, and so there we were. I brought Ashley to my hometown, and she thought to herself, where did you grow up, right? There was one stoplight in town, and then, you know, we, or not one stoplight, she said there was one stop. There's much more stoplights, but she'll tell you there's only one stoplight. And that was her feeling, but it wasn't until she went to the grocery store, you know, because we had been shopping at Trader Joe's, at Sprouts, at all these places, these whole down-to-earth type places, right? And then there in this big grocery store in my hometown was this small little corner about from me to Carol, the organist, away of the only natural organic food in the entire store, right? And you realize it wasn't just me that had changed. It was my habits and practices. I couldn't even find the food that we had become accustomed to eating because we try to eat natural and organic food and try to be locally sustained and so on and so forth. And it's within that context, friends, I was gone for like a year to five years. The Israelites had been gone for nearly 50 years, sent out by the Babylonians to exile from a a time of 10-year difference, the first sending and then the second sending, and then they were gone in another country entirely for 50 years. And it was genius by the Babylonians because what happens when you go away from home? You get married and you learn new customs and practices like I had learned in living in Southern California and Japan. And when you come home at an opportunity, it is now different and perhaps even weird. And the Babylonians knew this as part of their way to control the conquered people, that if they take spouses from the home nationality of Babylon, they perhaps would also take on new habits and practices, and that it would change them. And the story of Ezra finds itself on the return back to Jerusalem. And one of the things that they emphasize during that return is that rather than building the houses and the homes of the people, we're going to build the temple of God back up from its destruction. Because if you knew one of the things with the Babylonian exile is they had destroyed the Holy of Holies. They had left the temple in Jerusalem in rubble. 
And the return, well, the turn was going to be difficult. And the return was going to be challenging. But the return focused first on a return to worship. And now, friends, don't get your you know, mind kind of off in the distance and think that they were just prioritizing sort of the religiosity of the day because worship is primary intention is not just about where you have gathered this morning with us. Worship is about formation, shaping us for our daily lives. There's this fancy word, liturgy, and that fancy word is the things that we do in our worship service, and some churches embrace liturgy, and other churches say, I have no liturgy. Liturgy is kind of rote and monotonous, but either way, we all have it, because it's not about the thing liturgy. It's about, it means the stuff we do in our worship service, and its Greek original meaning is the actions that make us more than a collection of individuals, but make us a body together. That the things that we do in our worship service shape us so that we collectively become different. And as the Israelites go back after 50 years, they say to themselves, the most important thing we do together is worship because it's in worship that we begin to unlearn some habits that we've gained. I was talking to an undisclosed person over the past week, and an undisclosed person was talking about our service and talking about a point in our service when we pray together. And I know this happens to none of you who are here or online with us. But the idea was they were talking about the prayer and how their mind just started to wander and they couldn't even think. And it was really long prayer, right? Which my prayers, the people can get really long. Not as long as my sermon, but they can get long. And I said, there's this double-edged sword with worship. On the one hand, we want people to be engaged and you know feel like it's something that they're connecting to. And on the other hand... We're trying to form us and shape us. And I remember many of conversations at the church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where there was multiple pastors that would gather around the table with our organists and our other leaders and our worship team. And there would be a debate about what was the most important component of worship. And the senior pastor would be like, we need more time for our sermon. And the organist would say, we need more time for the music. But then there was our spiritual formation director that always reminded us of the need for both prayer and for silence. Silence isn't entertaining. Long prayers aren't entertaining. We have enough entertainment going on in our lives. How often do you have a moment of silence? without picking up your phone and checking out TikTok or Instagram or the news or whatever it be? How often do we pray? See, we do those things in our worship service so that we might also do them in our homes. 
Ezra and the writer of Nehemiah, the two books of the Old Testament on the return to Israel, focused heavily on the spiritual lives of the Jewish people on their return. And it's also Ezra and Nehemiah who formed what we come to know as the Bible. They're the ones who sort of put together that final composition of many of the books of the Old Testament, minus the ones that were still yet to be written or edited upon, and brought to the people the words of old, the word of God's story amongst God's people, and put a focus on sort of this scriptural connection of God's people, which of course is something each and every one of us can do not just here in this place for worship, but also in our homes. And I know that we have a propensity to do the things that we love, and we have a propensity to be attracted to things that entertain us as we go back to normal life. And so I'm so thankful for all of us who continue to worship online with us and all of us who continue to worship or come to worship to gather here. Because as we return to life, we must not forget the power of worship in our lives. The rhythm of prayer and praise and listening together of fellowship, of passing the peace of Christ to one another, of confessing that we have gone astray. And so friends, my question simply is this. If you're with us this morning, live or in person or following throughout the week, you are here and you are present. And how will you take the worship into your daily life? And as the restrictions continue to change amidst COVID, continue to implement a life of worship throughout your week. So it's not just Sunday morning when we gather at the table, but it's all the days of our weeks when we gather around the table. John Wesley, one of the founders of the United Methodist Movement, talked about how you could never stop praising God. So sing praises all day long. Pray without ceasing, the Apostle Paul says. Devote ourselves to the Scripture. Worship in our day today. I've always said one of the things that makes our communion table so powerful and meaningful is not just that it's a sacrament and when we gather in this space. But it's also that we come to learn the stories of one another around those smaller tables in our lives. Whether it's small group or simply coffee or barbershop quartets or, what the small, or, or whatever you have it. Gathering around tables, learning stories throughout the week gives more meaning to our corporate gathering. And let's be honest, we've all picked up habits during the pandemic, some of them perhaps good, but others perhaps that are not so good or healthy for us. 
So as we return, how might worship be part of our new habit? Shape us so that what we do here reflects what we do day in and day out. A people of thanksgiving, of prayer, of scripture, of fellowship. As God's people returned to Israel, God knew that it wasn't just a return to worship in the temple, but it was a change of their very lifestyle. How do we pray together that God might change our lifestyle so that we might grow more deeply connected to God's love, more engaged in loving one another, and more engaged in loving the world around us and being the hands and feet of Jesus. So as the worship team comes, I invite you to pray with us. Pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks that we are able to come and worship you together. Singing, praying, hearing scripture, offering to you our very lives. And as we do all of those things together, Remind us of the heart of worship that's to come and do those things here in this place and to give you that adoration and thanksgiving and also to bring the order, the rhythm of worship into our everyday lives. That we might find time for prayer, find time for scripture, find time for fellowship for confession, for giving ourselves each and every day. So that what we do here and what we do in our homes and our workplaces might transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit into your body and presence in the world. That is to say, your church, the body of Christ. And so where habits have gone astray, perhaps rhythms of waking to the news or being more comfortable alone than in community, or perhaps even harder rhythms that many have picked up throughout the pandemic of one, two extra drinks or substance abuses or challenges in relationships. Or turn to what is easy instead of what is just. Help us bring the heart of worship into our very hearts, into our very lives. 
that we might be like you, the one we worship, Jesus Christ, our Lord.